You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. Hello and welcome to the second season of CoinGeek Conversations. And my special guest to launch the second run of podcast is Steve Shadows, the CTO, Chief Technical Officer of Enchain, which is the London business whose mission is, uh, quote, to ignite global adoption and enterprise level usage of Bitcoin. And the quote goes on, we believe Bitcoin SV will fulfill the Satoshi vision and change the world. So Steve is arguably the ultimate authority on how Bitcoin SV will develop. Steve, thanks very much for doing this. Pleasure to be here. Would you dispute that description of you? Um, I, I don't know that Bitcoin has any, any ultimate authorities. It was kind of designed uh, uh, not to, but um, I, I, it's fair to say that I have uh, quite a lot of influence, I suppose, in the, in, in the direction of Bitcoin. Ultimately, my goal, though, is to make myself uh, replaceable and redundant. Um, and I hope to achieve that uh, within, uh, within a couple of years. Uh, and is that, you don't mean personally, you mean the role that you take in leadership. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because the system will be so sorted out that that job doesn't need doing anymore. Um, I, I think the job will always need doing, um, but uh, it needs to be done by more than one person and it needs to not be done by a developer. Um, the, the ultimate role of, of governance in, in Bitcoin um, is, is supposed to rest with miners. Um, and I mean, the, the Quasar upgrade uh, just... Uh, that we've Quasar hard fork that we just went through very recently was uh, was a significant step in um, in pushing that uh, that role toward the miners, uh, so to speak. One question I've been asked to ask you is why was it called Quasar? Um, it was a little bit whimsical. Um, I think we'd had some previous software updates that had been named after uh, galaxies. Um, the running theme was it needed to be something big. Um, I kind of wanted to shift the direction uh, a little bit, but uh, we stuck with um, uh, you astronomical, know, a, a, a astronomical uh, <laughs> phenomena. <laughs> And um, quasars uh, all, all tend to have black holes in the middle. And, yes, uh, I was wondering whether there was some relevance. To I think that. I think the the um, the artistic license there was it was meant to symbolise the you know sucking up of uh, the the mass of transactions uh, oh, see, and the yeah. capability of the of the software to do that. Right. Mm. At a sort of higher level, the way Bitcoin SV is developing at the moment, the emphasis seems to be on apps and. Uh, usage in non-financial situations that hmm. that wasn't really originally in the white paper or in the original vision was it um i, I don't know that it was uh, explicitly discussed in the in the white paper but um there are a lot of clues i think to satoshi's thinking um in the way that he he built and, and wrote um bitcoin the scripting language itself has um, has opcodes in it that are capable of pushing uh, up to four gigabytes of data into a into a single transaction, and that's just with one push operation. Um, the original um, implementation didn't have limits, so you you could have pushed four gigabytes, you know, a thousand times uh, in a single transaction if you wanted to. So. The fact that those sorts of operations are there, I think, is a clue to the fact that Satoshi really wanted to be unbounded in his thinking uh, about uh, about how, how Bitcoin could be Right, used. so he certainly left the opportunity, even if he hadn't explicitly explained 
yeah, what yeah. that opportunity was. And I mean, I mean, Bitcoin's, uh, you know, it's not an easy subject to explain. Um, perhaps he just wanted to kind of focus on, on getting people to understand the, you know, the payment use case uh, yeah. initially, because that was probably the one that um, there was uh, uh, a lot, uh, a lot more interest in. Um, Going back to the idea of who's running Bitcoin SV, you, you've already mentioned that it would be great if you could sort of do yourself out of a job. Hmm. And that, so the miners will really be running the show. Hmm. It seems to me that in trying to get adoption, particularly in the, the world of big business, hmm. the, the natural kind of entity that big business deals with is a, a, a company with an office like Enchain and professional people in it. Hmm. There's a bit of a tension there, perhaps, between that professional, conventional view of who's running the show and then this network of miners, which is a much more sort of nebulous concept for, for business to take on. Is that, a, is that a sort of limiting factor, do you think, in adoption? Um, I mean, it's, a, it's an astute observation because I've, I have had contact from, uh, from various people over, over the last six months, so essentially assuming that, um, that we run uh, we run Bitcoin that, uh, that, that it's our project. Um, I think over time as, uh, as businesses sort of get used to the idea of, of, of how Bitcoin works and, and, and adapts, what Enchain will be seen as more of is a, you know, a, a gateway will be seen as, um, uh, as people who have a lot of expertise in the space. Uh, you know, many industries I suppose have you know, a few key um, thought leaders I suppose in, in, in consulting firms. Um, so that's where I think uh, Enchain will end up. Uh, yeah, I did see seen. one comment that um, Enchain is to Bitcoin SV what Apple Computer was to computers. Is that something you would that be a way you'd like to look at it? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a reasonable analogy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Apple today is uh, is not the um, yeah. I'm talking about the, in the early yeah, in days. the company around that's, uh, mm. that is involved in computing. But yeah, they were they were thought leaders uh, in in the early days. Mm. One of the sort of big emphases at the moment is on scaling, obviously. Mm. Um, bigger blocks and making room for more transactions. Um, I've seen a critic of that who, who's written in a tweet. I'd like to see what you think of this. This is not going to benefit anyone but a plutocracy of people owning extensive resources. BSV's real vision is making the rich richer and the poor poorer. Um, that, that's that's an interesting take on it. And look, there's a there's a whole uh, technical argument that I can make um, uh, to um, to explain why I don't think that's the case at all. Um, but I think it's it's probably more interesting to focus on the economic argument. Um, a, a scaling uh, Bitcoin is really kind of key to um, uh, developing its security, to developing its utility. Um, and uh, again, there's technical arguments that I can go into to, to, to kind of explain why. But um, uh, as Bitcoin becomes uh, more widespread and, um, and available to, uh, to different parts of the world, it, it, it really enables, uh, it, it puts the power of economic sovereignty into the, into the hands of people who currently don't have it. Um, I mean, people in the third world uh, are empowered and enabled to trade. Uh, with people in other countries, with people, you know, in the in the next village uh, or whatever, um, 
it, it, it puts opportunity in their in their hands. Um, and um, you know, I, I don't want to get into into my own personal politics, but I think there is nothing uh, more powerful that you can give somebody than uh, than opportunity. It's then up to them if they want to seize it and take it. But um, um, the poor getting poorer. I mean, if 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 they have opportunity uh, in front of them, then um, then you know it's it's a matter of choice for them. Do they want to get poorer or do they want to enrich themselves? They they can do that, and I think that that's what uh, what, what Bitcoin's going to um, going to help. Right. I, I guess what the person who wrote that criticism was thinking of is it's not going to be easy to some easy for somebody to get out their laptop and mine some Bitcoin for themselves as they might have done right at the beginning. But mm. the, you're saying that the, the bigger consequences will easily outweigh that kind of a problem. Yeah, yeah, I, they don't need to. If you, if you want to use Bitcoin, you don't need to be running a, a Bitcoin node. Um, Satoshi laid this out right back in the, in, in the very beginning. In fact, in, in the white paper, um, SPV, Simplified Payment Verification. Um, is a, is a mechanism that anyone can use with uh, with tiny hardware. You could run it on a, on a, an old style mobile phone. We, we, we've uh, referred to Craig already quite a bit. You, you work very closely with Craig, who is the chief scientist of Enchain. Yep. Um, how does that how does that working relationship work out? I mean, on a practical level. Craig is a fascinating guy. Um, it's it's usually jovial, occasionally a bit stormy, um, but um, I think I, I consider my job to be uh, in part um, understanding what Craig's uh, long-term vision for Bitcoin is. You know, the 10, 20 year kind of view. Um, and my role is to translate that into a, a shorter term, two to five year kind of uh, implementation uh, plan. Um, so, I mean, it can be challenging to understand what Craig's talking about sometimes. I, I generally consider myself to be about six months behind. Um, the first time a concept is raised, on average, it take about six months before I finally click to, to, um, to what it is that he, he really means. Um, but uh, I mean, it's a it's a privilege to be in the, in this position and to be able to you know, pick his brains uh, on a daily basis. And um, although he's sloppy with details and uh, isn't the greatest communicator, um, I've had the experience over and over again of um, of uh, you know a little bit down the track, clicking to what he was talking about and realizing, wow, this guy actually uh, wasn't just right on this technical point, but this technical point the way that he put it um, uh, betrays the fact that this man is understanding Bitcoin at the most incredibly deep level. Yeah. Um, he's thinking about things uh, years before anyone else uh, clicks to it. Um, so, I mean, obviously there's this whole controversy. Um, Greg Wright equals Satoshi Nakamoto. That is 100% accepted within Enchain and within CoinGeek, mm. uh, where I work. Um, and uh, you r have written once on this subject, very movingly, I thought, and I'm just going to read out the little bit that you said about this. Uh, I have seen so much evidence that Craig is Satoshi, that it is a no brainer for me. It's not something I believe, it is something I know as an ironclad and indisputable fact. So much so that when I was offered the opportunity to see a private cryptographic proof Without even thinking, I said, no, I don't need to see it. And the conversation ended there. Hmm. I mean, 
there's a lot of um, feeling and a lot of trust in your attitude and your openness about that. Hmm. Um, obviously, you didn't want to be sort of a doubting Thomas who needed needed the proof. Did, did, so did Craig sort of appreciate the trust that you were putting in him by not accepting his offer of showing you the proof, do you think? Um, I, yeah, I, I, I think he did. Um, the way that conversation came about, actually, it was quite um, amusing. I was standing around a barbecue and I think I was joking with him, you know, how come you've never offered me the proof, you bastard? And he just looked at me and said, you can have it if you want it, do you need it? And I said, well, actually, no, I don't. I, um, I think if you, if you put it in front of me, I, 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 would, I would walk away. Um, and um, I, I went in, on in that article, I think, to, to, to explain part of the reason why is because um, when I say evidence, I've seen a whole lot of other, um, other evidence that's sort of different in style to what I'm about to describe. But one of, one of the key points of evidence is, um, is his understanding of, of Bitcoin. It's, it's so deep. It's so multi-layered. Um, this, this is someone who's been thinking about this for a lot longer than 10 years. Um, and Craig's contribution to Bitcoin as Craig Wright, um, I think it, it, it stands on its own. We don't need to attach the mythology of Satoshi Nakamoto to, to Craig Wright to, to appreciate what Craig is, um, is able to contribute to Bitcoin. Um, and I think perhaps that is why the notion of this, this, uh, this, this proof session um, left me feeling a bit uncomfortable because to me it was to not acknowledge what, uh, what Craig's contribution is to require him to be this, uh, this myth. Um, I think that's unfair. Uh, unfair on Craig, it's unfair on Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, they're two different personas. Right. Um, one thing I don't quite understand is that when he tried to do this demonstration uh, in London for the BBC mm. and other media outlets, he, he chose not to do the simple task that everyone said, oh, well, if you just do this, you will have proved it. Mm. I mean, what, what can you sort of help me understand why that didn't happen, or did it happen, but people didn't recognize it, or what's going on there? I don't think it happened. I think, I think, I mean, I, I wasn't around at that time, but from um, I've obviously looked into it uh, extensively. Um, this whole process of, of, of Craig having to come out in public was a, was a, a um, a deeply challenging thing for him. I don't think he ever wanted to do it. Um, and uh, I, I guess, you know, at the last minute, um, he, um, he arced up and, and, and just said, no, like, I won't. Uh, and it was a difficult situation because a lot of groundwork had been laid for this moment. And, you know, a few people were put in a, um, a you know, difficult, difficult position. And I'm sure that Craig understood that and felt the pressures of, of all of those things. Um, I, I, I think Craig is really trying to make a point here is that, uh, that, that, that cryptographic proof um, only shows that he holds a private key. Uh, it doesn't show that he held it back then. Uh, it doesn't show that he's the legal owner. Um, it, um, it's a point on which the world is, is, is fixating as, as though it is proof that he is Satoshi Nakamoto. It's, it's actually not. It's, it's just proof that he happens to hold a private key that we believe that Satoshi Nakamoto did once. Um, so, so, so you think that 
it wasn't that he failed to do it, it's that he chose, he didn't, he, he changed his mind at the last minute and decided he wasn't going to offer that proof after all. Yeah, I think he chose not to. Yeah, because yeah, he offered something, but it wasn't considered uh, definitive. Uh, I, I mean, he published a, a, it's, uh, it's referred to the Jean-Paul Sartre uh, yes. blog post. And he published uh, what was purported by other people to have been a proof, a fake proof. Um, and if you go and read that uh, uh, that post carefully, he never actually says that. It's just what people uh, have assumed that it was. Um, and I think the thing that, um, uh, that that I find really strange about that post and the the way that it was kind of received uh, by the world is there was a signature in that post, uh, a cryptographic signature, which is what um, was widely assumed to have been. You know, this is. Is Craig saying this is the signature I've signed, which proves I'm, I'm Satoshi Nakamoto? That signature was actually from the public blockchain from years ago. Uh, he pulled it out of the public blockchain, and I don't know how long it took—a few days—but uh, but someone uh, found it and went, "Oh, hang on, what's this?" Now, it beggars belief that a man with Craig's experience in cryptography would attempt to publish a fake proof using a Bitcoin, uh, using a, a signature that is available in a public blockchain um, and people would uh, and think that he would get away with it. I mean, it's, 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 it's so obvious that, uh, that I have to assume that he intended for people to find out that, uh, that this signature was not actually the authentic signature that, uh, that people had assumed that it was going to be. Um, so I think with that post, Craig was trying to send some kind of message. I'm not entirely sure what it was, but he was not saying, here's the cryptographic proof that I'm Satoshi Nakamoto. I think in, in, uh, in a sense, it was uh, almost giving the middle finger to, to people who thought they had a right to demand that from him. Possibly he just wanted to keep it ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, really good reasons why, um, why he might want to do that. I mean, if I owned uh, potentially 5% of the, uh, the possible future money supply of the, of the, of the global economy, I probably wouldn't want uh, the world to know uh, right. who I was either. Mm. One thing that you and Craig have in common is you're both Australian, mm -hmm. or, or were from Australia anyway. Um, what, what were you doing before, before you got into all this? Um, well, I, 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 was, uh, I spent about 12 years actually as a... Um, software engineer uh, contractor uh, working from home so um, uh, coming to London was a bit of a shock to me because it meant coming back into a, the office environment which um, I'd uh, thought I'd left behind me. Well, uh, did you did you live in the outside of the city or? Um, well I tried to uh, but um, I, I did end up living in a, um, a unit in um, fairly close to, to inner city Brisbane yeah actually only a few kilometers away from where, uh, where Craig grew up. Um, oh really? Ironically, yes, yes. Um, I grew up uh, in um, in Townsville, uh, also only a few few kilometres away from where Julian Assange grew up. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a strange little nexus, uh, uh, Queensland, uh, Australia. There's a, there's a lot of uh, Bitcoin activity and uh, been a lot to of this day, uh, historical yeah. uh, um, people, rather people that have become prominent in um, in, in the world of cryptography. Mm. I heard you were a DJ as well, is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was. Um, was that a job or just a hobby? 
Um, it was, um, well, I mean, I, I, I ran it as a business for a few years, uh, which um, the best I could do was break even for, for, for a while. In fact, it was more than just DJing. I actually put on events and did sound and lighting and, and, and all sorts of stuff. But uh, I did it because I, I, I loved the, the particular style of music. Um, and it was great fun. And uh, probably would have spent more of my life uh, as a software engineer had I not uh, done that but uh, but it was a fun little diversion what, for, what was the 10 years. what era of music um, oh, so it, it was uh, techno when I started in the, in the sort of very early days um, it was a famous period of time I suppose in uh, in the UK 1988-89 known as the, the summer of love which was kind of the I guess the, the Woodstock of, of, of techno um, I was a little bit too young to, to have been here to um, to enjoy that, but I got uh, got involved in the techno scene like, from from quite a young age. Is there a connection between people who like techno and software engineers, or is that just a very superficial connection? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Um, I met a lot of software engineers that actually hate it with a passion, but uh, <laughs> um, I mean, for me, yeah, I, I, I loved, you know, electronic sounds from a, from a very young age. Were you so. playing with sort of waveform generators and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I grew up in the 80s and I was, um, uh, I was into um, any bands that had synthesizers, you know, you know the New Order is one of the, the classic ones that people... Um, people often quote so when this thing called techno came out I was just blown away um, I actually tried to I wanted to learn how to play the synthesizer as a kid but I was uh, told by everybody who knew anything about it that I had to learn the piano first otherwise I'd end up with weak fingers or, or <laughs> something um, so I never never kind of got there but uh, um, what's your piano playing kids like? used to go to school and um, you know they would record songs off the radio off the, the top 40 or, or something like that I was I was the um, the ultimate nerd I actually recorded the uh, soundtracks from video games onto, onto tape and that's what I would be listening to in my Walkman <laughs> at school yeah. and how's your piano playing ah uh, dreadful, dreadful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now one other thing about this is that Somebody told me that they thought that Craig might have actually come to one of your events without you knowing each other. Have you come across that idea? Um, no, I suspect I might know where they might have come from. Um, I, I don't think he would have come to one of my events. Um, what's possible is we might have been at the same events in Sydney uh, when I was, uh, when oh. I was young, 19. Or, or, or what, like sort of music type things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. big, big, big uh, techno dance parties. Um, I, I spent about a year, or, a year or two in Sydney, and, and he would have been there at the time. And right. Would have been about the right age. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, we, we don't know that for sure, but uh, <laughs> it's possible. Maybe if we study the old photos if we can find find you and him in the same picture. That'd be great. Oh God, I hope I hope none of those photos exist. <laughs> yeah. um, I saw you talking at a meetup uh, probably last year. And you, you referred to your sort of anti-establishment uh, mm. roots in, in the, the part of the attraction for this whole area for you was that it had a sort of anarchist mm. flavour. Tell me a bit about that. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's part of a process. I mean, um, yeah, definitely I was... Uh, I've always been you know, deeply suspicious of governments, um, and, um, and I think I still am. Um, 
and I think the naive reaction to that, uh, you know, it's uh, it begins in university and, and, and places like that. But just it's a it's a funny pattern. You, you, yeah. Students are notorious for for protest and, and and certain sort of types of political views. And as people get older, then there's a tendency for them to sort of shift to to other views. And um, I think it's because you know life provides experience that rounds you out uh, etc so i mean I, I do consider some of my kind of uh, former anarchist uh tendencies to, to to be somewhat naive um but um but did you think that bitcoin was a, a key way in which some of those ideals could be realized um, yeah, yeah, I, so, I was certainly on, on Because that's on not Craig's line at all, is it? He's very much yeah. against that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, the, I think my attitude toward Bitcoin uh, in, my, in my early days was, was probably quite con contrary to, to, to Craig's. But I think as time went on, I started to understand that the whole notion of, uh, you know, suspicion of government, etc. It's not a black and white issue. Um, I don't need to like government. In fact, I'm... I'm Partway through writing a blog post, which I've been doing for three months, uh, which is entitled "I Don't Like Government, But I'm Glad We Have Them." Um, and in fact, I think what I'm probably more so talking about is the um, the establishment of a of a, of a, of a system of law. Um, if you really think out anarchism, what does the world look like? in that circumstance. Well, we have a great movie uh, that was made in Australia in the, in the 1980s called Mad Max, and uh, that's, that's not a pretty no. world. But getting back to Bitcoin, though, mm. if we move into a world in which Bitcoin is dominant, that's going to undermine the power of government, isn't it? Because it'll be a network that they can't pull the levers on to control in the way that they do with the money supply at the moment, for instance? I, th I think if it, if it does become dominant, it's going to shift how, uh, how governments operate. And there's a, there's a trade-off here uh, for government. And, um, and this is a message that we sort of need to start explaining um, to governments in particular. Um, what they will lose is a particular lever over, over monetary uh, policy. Uh, and I think that's quite a long way off and they'll have a very long time to adapt. But what they gain in terms of the auditability, um, the honesty that it, the, that it will bring and the integrity that it will bring to financial systems, I think is um, orders of magnitude more, uh, more, more than that, that cost. These financial levers, um, they're often used to cover up uh, you know, poor economic practice. I mean, if you can just go and create money and borrow your way out of uh, out of any kind of economic mismanagement then um, you um, uh, you can avoid a lot of accountability uh, yeah but the, we're not going to get to a world where there isn't any economic mismanagement really are we so maybe we need those tools um, I, I, I think you can limit the amount of economic mismanagement by by making it more accountable and making people more accountable uh, for it. So um. there is an idealistic side to to the Bitcoin project. Um, I was talking to uh, Lorian Gamaroff from Centbe about how it could benefit Africa. Mm. I mean, to what extent is that whole side of things 
important to you and central to the, the project? Um, uh, extremely important. Uh, I, I've actually said uh, in the past um, that for me, Bitcoin is not about the first world, it's about the third world. Um, I believe that the first world is probably going to be the vehicle through which uh, Bitcoin grows and, and expands. Um, but once it has done so, then it, it can bring enormous benefits to, to, to the third world. Putting the power of trade in people's hands is, um, is, is an extraordinary uh, uh, thing. Um, because to me, trade represents opportunity. Um, you know, money is essentially a representation of work. The reason why I'm willing to go to the shop and pay more for a loaf of bread than, um, than going to the supermarket and buying the ingredients and making it myself is because to me the time involved is more valuable than the, than the price difference and someone specializes in that. Um, but if you don't have a means of turning your own ability to work into economic value, um, a means of exchange, um, then you know, how, how can you change your life circumstances? And uh, how, but how is Bitcoin going to change that any more than, say, the internet changed it? Enabling friction-free uh, payment and trading across borders right. uh, is, uh, is, is, a, is a hugely powerful thing. I mean, um, India's um, uh, IT industry, uh, their call center industry, which is, you know, uh, uh, notorious, um, has enabled, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people to, uh, to, to lift themselves up to kind of a, a, a new economic strata. Uh, and it's only possible because of the, the ability for them to communicate and interact. And Bitcoin allows people to communicate and interact, both in the traditional sense, but also in a, in a, in a financial sense. So we, we talk about Bitcoin is the financial end of it, but there's the metanet which is applications built on the, the Bitcoin SV blockchain. Hmm. I mean, how does that fit into that picture? Uh, I'm going to be um, bluntly honest here. I didn't even think about the whole MetaNet application until Craig raised it, uh, you know, last year, a few months before, um, before he sort of started talking about it publicly. Um, and I was scratching my head. It was just a totally new, new concept to me. Um, it took a few months before um, I really even clicked and understood what it was he was talking about and why it might actually be a useful alternative to the way that people do things now. Um, but it's a really new area and, uh, and people are exploring it um, and um, they're coming up with uh, you know, new ways to use it on a daily basis and I think many of the early ideas probably will fall by the wayside uh, and some of them will... Uh, um, we'll get traction and, and, and go the distance, but um, I don't think we're anywhere near being able to understand the potential of MetaNet uh, just yet. Do you think that if it works, it's going to undermine the tech giants and their sort of business models, advertising data business models that, that we have at the moment? Potentially. Um, if you can change the notion uh, that... Um, That people own their own data, uh, or get people to you know understand that they own their own data and that it has value and that you can trade 
on that data. Um, then that's hugely threatening to the to the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. Uh, they they operate on the premise that people don't understand the value of their own data. They they know damn well that data is valuable, but they don't want you to know that um, because you're right. giving it away to them. Yes. Yeah. I mean, one one thing that I, I haven't been involved in this for for very long. One thing I've noticed is that it's a very the whole cryptocurrency world is incredibly tribal, really, isn't it? There's this mm. huge bad feeling between one bunch and another. Mm. I mean, do you see there's going to be a sort of winner-takes-all end to this story? Or could we end up with Bitcoin SV is good for this, BTC is good for that, mm. and we can all live happily ever after? Um, I think probably the notion of private blockchains will be around for, for, for a while before the business world kind of gets comfortable with the fact that um, public blockchains actually uh, offer far more benefits than um, than the perceived benefits of keeping it private. Um, I, I am a Bitcoin maximalist, though. I do believe, you know, one coin to rule them all. Um, and I don't believe that Ethereum, BTC, uh, Monero, Dash, whatever, will be around in five or ten years. I think but could you have one coin that is good for long-term storage of value Mm. and another coin that is good for a million very low value transactions on a day-to-day -day basis, for instance? Um, no, I definitely don't believe that. Um, this, this notion of, of store of value um, is, is, is kind of ridiculous. I mean, gold is, uh, is, is considered valuable because uh, like, there are reasons for it. Um, it's, a, it's a useful metal, it's a shiny, pretty metal. People want it for reasons other than that it's valuable. Bitcoin BTC, on the other hand, it has value because people say it does. People say on the internet over and over again, oh, it's a store of value. But it has no utility. There's no actual other reason for people to attribute value to. Well, the utility is that it's it's easy to transfer from one person. Well, relatively easy compared to a block of gold, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I suppose in that respect, it's slightly more more useful than gold. But that's only useful if it does actually store value. Um, I, I think one day the world will wake up and go, what 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 is this? This is the you know the next iteration of the of the tulip bubble um it's not useful for payments uh, it's not useful you know in, in in everyday life um a cryptocurrency that can be used for payments on the other hand um and is used in high volume um actually does have intrinsic value uh we have this economic notion of velocity of money which is um is directly correlated to to, to, to the value of um of a currency itself. Um, the reason why I might want US dollars is because up until a few years ago, if I wanted to buy a barrel of oil, I could only buy it with US dollars. So before I got my oil, I had to go out and seek out the US dollars and pay for them with my British pounds or, or whatever. So do you, are you 100% sure that in 20 or 30 years time, we'll still be talking about Bitcoin SV? Well, I think we will have dropped the SV part. I think we'll right. be back to talking about Bitcoin. Um, yeah, I think I think Bitcoin is around. It's uh, it's it's here to stay. Um, it's it's useful in so many different ways that even if the payment use case doesn't take off or takes a long time 
longer time than we expect to take off, it's it's still going to be around and useful for for um, for many many applications. So um, yeah, I think at, at a global level, do you reckon? I think so. Yeah. So that the work of Enchain today could be of interest to historians in the future, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, and uh, a lot of that work's going to be uh, recorded there immutably uh, in the in the blockchain. Uh, so it'll be easier for blockchain archaeologists to um, to work out what happened. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many thanks to Steve Shadows for getting us off to a great start in this second season of the CoinGeek Conversations podcast. Uh, please join me again next week when I'll be talking to Jerry Chan from the Japanese financial services group SBI. Till then, thanks for listening and goodbye.